Not only has Norwich produced or put one of its residents on every U.S. Winter Olympic team except for one since 1984, it has put two summer Olympians on teams. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, New York Times sports writer Karen Krause. Her book, Norwich, details how a small rural town is producing not only successful athletes, but healthy, happy, and productive children. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. Today's talks are from the 2017 Project Play Summit, held by the Aspen Institute's Sports and Society Program. More than 400 leaders came together in early September to chart next steps in building healthy communities through sport. Norwich, Vermont may be tiny, the population is just 3,000, but its sports reputation is big. Over the years, nearly a dozen Olympic athletes have grown up there. Journalist Karen Krauss says it could be the powerful maple syrup or a combination of education, strong community, and healthy parenting. She first visited Norwich when researching her book, Norwich, One Tiny Vermont Town's Secret to Happiness and Excellence. It started as a sports book, she says, but became a parenting guide. In it, she outlines the humanistic and holistic parenting approach used in Norwich. Later in the show, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred talks about taking the professionalism out of youth sports and focusing on simple and formal play for kids. There is informal play out there. I mean, I think that people have in their heads that the growth in the sport, the growth in participation, all involves organized play on teams. First, Karen Krause of the New York Times sits down with John Solomon. He's the editorial director of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. They spoke at Project Play. Solomon asked Krauss about her book, Norwich. It's really a book that um, could be a model for what uh, communities could look like in youth sports. And just, just to sort of set the scene a little bit, Norwich, Vermont is a small town of about 3,000 people. They've put an athlete on almost every U.S. Winter Olympics team and has won three medals. So to put that in perspective, uh, Spain has 46 million people, and they've won uh, two Winter Olympic medals since 1936. Uh, New Zealand has 4.7 million people. They have won uh, two Winter Olympics medals. So, Karen, this is a town of 3,000 people. Yep. They've produced 11 Olympians, dating back over several decades, won three medals. What is going on in Norwich, Vermont? some powerful maple syrup, I'm telling you. Um, it was really interesting because I had never stepped foot in Vermont before I went to research um, for this book. And what I found is that obviously Vermont is, it's quirky, it revels in its independence. And um, so the athletes I came upon are for the most part not I didn't find a figure skater in the bunch. It's ski jumpers and mogul skiers. And um, so they're not attracted to those sports to get rich. So they are maybe going to these sports with a pure um, purpose to begin with. But what I also found very quickly is that um, in, in this town and in Vermont in general, they sort of raise their children the way they once did their um, 
the farmers did their cattle and whatnot organically, no supersizing, no genetically modifying to try to get better, bigger results. So it was. It really started out as a sports book and became more of a parenting guide because. As I've sat here today listening to all these terrific panels, what has really struck me is that this town really is the paradigm of the Project Play um, embodiment. You know, many of the kids, almost every one of the kids plays sports at some time because they actually still have a recreation department, and it's a no-cut recreation department. So anything that you do, you are guaranteed uh, participation in. Most of the kids do return year after year, and um, they try many sports. In fact, of the 11 Olympians, the 10 of them changed sports with the season in high school. One of the Olympians played four sports, so they really have not... Um, they've been able to stiff-arm this whole professionalization model that is driving parents elsewhere insane. So did, I want to touch, touch on that a little bit more, on that model, the professionalization. And, and you write that they haven't caught up and stayed up to date with the arms races. They're not involved yes. in that with academics and with sports. Is that something they chose to do? And, and, and also, how do they maintain it? you know, as, as they continue on over these uh, several decades. So we talk about modeling, and it starts with the parents. Many of these parents, um, they, they forsook um, high-powered careers in urban centers when they had children because they wanted to give their children the childhoods that they had. So they were looking for a more rural place to raise their children. So they're in some ways self-selecting because they're choosing an area. Norwich is across the Connecticut River from Dartmouth, but it is 90 minutes from the nearest airport where you can get you know, decent connections. It's two hours from Boston. It's, I think, um, nearly five hours to New York. So you have to be willing to be a little farther afield from um, where all the quote-unquote action is. But I also think that all the parents I came across, they model for their children the behavior that they hope to instill in their children. They all are very active. They exercise for the sake of exercising, not for any other reason, not for competitive purposes, but just because they see the mental benefits or they want to commune with nature. And they also highly value education, highly value community. It was such a joy. I actually moved to this um, town for six months, and it was such a joy to see the communitarian spirit. Um, I have spent 30 years covering um, sports, and too often I feel disheartened by the and the zero-sum game that sports have become, even with parents, like my child, if my child prospers, your child doesn't. You know, my child wins at the expense of your child. So it creates this cutthroat competitive atmosphere. Norwich has managed to avoid that. In fact, when I was researching the book, 
I remember being in an exercise class and these ladies came up to me afterward and said, are you the lady writing the book? Well, you need to talk to Edie because her son is an aspiring Olympian in the moguls. So here were other parents touting someone else's child. And that was very, um, that embodied what I found in Norwich. Um, not only has Norwich produced or put one of its residents on every U.S. Winter Olympic team except for one since 1984, it has put two summer Olympians on teams, including an 800-meter runner. And it was so funny. I was talking to one of the ski jumpers, and he said, yeah, you know, being the best ski jumper in America is like being the tallest midget, but in <laughs> everybody runs. So for Andrew Weeding to make the Olympic team, that's really a something. You really need to talk to him. And he told me something that has stuck with me. He told me this very early before I could really appreciate it, but he said, you know, in a lot of towns, it's sort of their Darwinian way of life that the strongest survive, but here it's the survival of all of us. And I really don't think that you can overstate the communitarian spirit and the one for all, all for one, that um, community uh, that really propels this city or this town its success. There are some great anecdotes you have in this book of the Olympians. My favorite is Hannah Kearney. Hannah is a, was an Olympic medalist, a gold medalist, mogul skier. She won gold in 2010. Um, she goes back to Sochi trying to repeat in 2014. She falters just a little bit, and she ends up winning the bronze, and then she's crushed. She, yes. She's in tears. She tweets. Um, she describes the bronze as a, it's like a broken heart. And the town of Norwich, when she won the gold medal in 2010, they threw this great victory parade, kind of like how I pictured the ticker tape parades in New York City when, um, when champions in the 30s and 40s would return home. So they did this on a much smaller scale for Hannah. So in 2014, when these townspeople read this post and could see how heartbroken she was, they just very organically said, we cannot let her feel this way. We have to do something. And so they rallied and in a matter of days put together this homecoming parade for Hannah. So here she comes home and thinks she's the biggest failure because third place is the second loser. That's her perfectionist mentality. Um, but they hold this parade and make her feel in no uncertain terms that they could not be more proud of her. And she told me that by the end of it, what might have devastated her for months or years, and boy, this is really a window into the elite athlete's psyche, that you would be devastated by a bronze medal for months or years she said it only took her you know a days or weeks to get over and that she owed that to Norwich that Norwich was almost there as her collective therapy you know when she was when she was having trouble um, really put framing her performance in a healthy light they would try to do that for her 
And, and share a little bit about the, the third grade teacher at the yes. parade who shows up. Hannah's, you know, devastated. And what did she keep all these years? So Hannah, in third grade, they had had a needlepoint project. And so this third grade teacher had saved Hannah's needlepoint project for all these years and thought that this was the perfect time to present her with it. So she had her come back to the third grade classroom um, a classroom where, by the way, Hannah in third grade had burst into tears when she found out that she was going to have to share a desk because she thought that she was now a big girl who should get her own desk. I mean, this is how this um, woman is wired. But gave presented her with this needlepoint that said, Home Sweet Home. And Hannah said, when she received this gift... She had two thoughts, like only in Norwich would a third grade teacher save this child's project for all these years. And then her second thought was, but how terrific that I live in this place where this teacher did. It's worth noting also the demographics of Norwich. It's uh, mostly white. It's uh, middle class to upper middle class. Median household income is $89,000. So how can that model, you know, community support. Um, sports isn't your only ticket. You have another right. identity. Um, the the col- uh, collaboration among the people in the community. How can that model be transported to other demographics, if, if you think it can? Yeah, I think they have such a humanistic approach to raising their children and a holistic approach. And I think that transcends any kind of demographic because... I am always puzzled, um, and as someone who grew up as an athlete and then I've been around athletics my entire adult life, I'm just baffled by this notion that um, parents invest so much in their children as if sports is their golden ticket, their meal ticket to a better life, when really if you look at all of the percentages that we've seen today where less than one percent of the kids who play sports in high school go on to play in college and then pro it gets whittled down even more really education is your golden ticket and because of this demographic they clearly understand that but Hannah is a great portal to show how the generosity of this community is also something worth replicating. Um, She reached a certain point where she was going to have to start traveling nationally, and her parents sat her down and said, we cannot afford for you to, we just can't afford to send you to competitions where you have to travel by plane and stay in hotels, so you're going to have to figure this out. So she drew up, she must have been 12 or 13 at the time, she drew up a little resume and got on her bike and went to area businesses and got a little bit of support that way. And then there was the father of a man in town who became her anonymous benefactor. She never met this man, and he supported her gave her the bulk of her financial support until she made the national team. And he asked for two things in return, such gifts when you hear what I'm going to tell you. He said, I want you to give me a budget for how you spend every dollar of the money that I give you. So here, at an age when a lot of kids 
don't really appreciate the value of a dollar, Hannah had to figure out she, exactly how much money she was spending for each trip, how the breakdown of how much does a plane ticket cost, how much does it cost to eat for a day, um, how much, how can I get the best hotel rate. So she was doing this all herself. Her parents were not doing this. Hannah was doing this. And then the second thing he asked for was her report card. So he didn't care how she performed in her sport. He wanted to see what kind of grades she maintained. And so he, she told me that without even realizing it at the time, he was giving her such a valuable gift, not only of the money, but of time of management of money and also making her understand at such a young age that academics was the priority. As much as she thought that sports was her world, he was reminding her academics is what is going to carry you far. You've covered a lot of Olympians, you know, as, as a reporter. I wonder, is there a big difference between the Olympians you deal with who from Norwich mm. and the other U.S. Olympians? I was really struck by how they how well they've been able to segue into their post sports lives. Um, I would say that of the Olympians that I've covered and of the Olympians that I grew up with, that I swam with in college, um, well over fifty percent have dealt with major depression. Um, a lot of mental health issues once they retire from their sports because it has been their self-identity. And they don't really grasp, well, if I have all of these life skills I've developed, they're easily translatable into other areas. The time management, the self-discipline, all of the, the delayed gratification, all of these things you're learning um, without even thinking about it as you pursue your sports goals are hugely impactful in the next area of your life. But they don't see that. So I cannot really overstate how many lost souls I've seen. And I'm talking about some of the most successful athletes that um, you know, you've heard of. So because these people have been developed... Um, holistically, they, their self-identities were never all about their sport. Even for someone like Hannah, who saw herself largely as a mogul skier, the townspeople were there always to say, no, Hannah, we see you as a great representative of the community. You're, we see you as someone who is very much a part of our fabric of the community. So they were always letting her know that she was so much more than a mogul skier. And I think that tie to the community is just really their salvation. Um, the two ski jumpers that are probably the best ski jumpers that America has ever produced, Jeff Hastings and Mike Holland, you can find them during the ski jumping high school season at Hanover High. One of them will be grooming the hill. The other will be on the PA system doing the announcing. These guys are the Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte of their sport. And here they are 
three decades later, just so involved on the grassroots level, not because they're being paid, they're volunteering their time. In fact, um, Mike Holland's wife joked to me, at least I think she was joking, said, you know, um, during the winter, Mike spends more time volunteering on the hill and ski jumping than he does at his actual job. Um, But they do this because all of these years later, they're so passionate about their sport, but it also was modeled for them that this is what you do. You um, don't just take and take and take from your community. You give back. You pay it forward. It was done for them, and they are doing it for others. Last thing, reporters as a whole tend to be cynical. And I say that as a recovering journalist, as a recovering reporter, so I know. Um, as you're reporting this, as you're writing this, is there any part of you going, this is just too good to be true. This, this can't, there's got to be something else going on here in Norwich, or am I missing something? Right. Well, I think there are two things that mitigated that. Um, obviously, not everyone, there are helicopter mothers and fathers there, but of the 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 last 10 Olympians produced by this town, there were none that I saw. But I grew up in Santa Clara in the 70s, and this was a time when Santa Clara was still agrarian. So it, in many ways, when I stepped foot in Vermont, I felt an instant connection that I could not explain because it reminded me so much of Santa Clara in the 70s. And... I think I didn't feel cynical about it because this was the sort of support um, that I grew up with. I grew up among Olympians, being coached by Olympians, so it really normalized what is this extraordinary feat made you think, of course I can go to the Olympics someday. You know, my last three coaches have done that. Um, So for that reason, I was probably less cynical. And also, I first found out about this town in a reader email when I was at the Sochi Olympics, which I am not a cynical person by nature, but the last few Olympics could turn me into a cynic because Sochi was just a miserable experience. It was hard to not feel as if you were Putin stagecraft, that you could see all of this money that was being spent for what purposes, that a lot of these facilities were going to become instant white elephants after the Olympics were over. You could see the unrest that was, um, you almost felt like after the last person left Sochi that war was going to break out across the border. Um, you saw athletes being pushed to do more and more daring feats at the expense of their well-being just to entertain the masses. It felt to me, as someone whose whole life has been shaped by the Olympics, that the purity of the Olympics, or what for me was the purity of purpose, we were so far beyond it that I wasn't sure it was recoverable. So this reader email, I cannot thank the person enough for making me aware of this small town because it renewed my faith in the purity of purpose of the Olympic movement. Great. Thank you, Karen. Thanks. Karen Krauss is a longtime sports reporter for the New York Times. Her book, Norwich, comes out in January. John Solomon is editorial director of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. Next, we hear from Rob Manfred. 
He's the Major League Baseball Commissioner. He speaks with Terry McDermott, author of Off Speed, Baseball, Pitching, and the Art of Deception. They were on stage at Project Play, held in Washington, D.C. You know, I see from the, the announcement earlier this morning that there's, what, 17, 18 different groups have now conspired to join the Aspen Institute in this project. Uh, maybe we should just declare victory and go home and talk about something more important like the Red Sox cheating. <laughs> well, I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. How about that? <laughs> well, can we get the Red Sox thrown out of the league? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I was talking to Jake and uh, Rick and Keel a little bit before, and uh, I think one of the things people don't realize is, uh, you know, sign stealing, it's kind of been an, there's no rule against it. It's kind of an accepted part of our game. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if you're on second base and you're not trying to help your teammate, you're probably not trying to win. Um, I stole your line, Jake. Where are you? <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that uh, the, the issue is electronics. And uh, I think our sport, like a lot of businesses, has to find the right line of introducing technology into the game, but making sure that it, it, it doesn't alter the game in a way you don't intend. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of a broader sort of a professionalization of everything, right? Right, um, right. And that's, I mean, this is going to maybe seem impertinent, but uh, Project Play is about deprofessionalizing play. Right. About making it a more pure form of things. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you're the head of professional sports league. <laughs> right. Um, it, whose goal is sort of the opposite. Uh, the, what, what the Aspen Institute is trying to do with this is they're, they're insurrectionists. They're, they're at the gates. Well, and, and you're the establishment. What well, the hell are you doing here? And well, uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, when, um, one of the things that occurred to me after I got elected, you know, people asking about me playing yeah. baseball. And, and I played all sports, but I um, only played baseball through Little League. I was actually the first commissioner who ever played Little League. I didn't know that until Steve Keener, who's in the back of the room, told me when I was visiting Williamsport. But um, it occurred to me when I got asked about playing that I thought I played a lot more baseball than my Little League experience would reflect. And when I thought back on it, um, it was days during the summer at a local park where kids would show up and we never had 18 kids. You know, we'd figure out some way to cover the field um, and some makeshift game that we'd play. And, but we played, we thought of that as baseball. And so when we started to think about the issue of youth participation, it seemed to us that one of the things we'd lost is that informal kind of play and interaction with our game um, that was so important to a lot of us when, when we were kids. So the, the, one of the sort of core principles of the Play Ball Initiative was to try to reintroduce this type of informal play where kids just get together, play the game. It's not 18 kids, they're not in uniform, there's no umpires, there's no parents, but they're playing baseball. And um, there's a lot of interest in that simpler form of play, not just with our sport, I think with sport in general out there. Um, the, one of the first places we talked about this issue was to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, 
that was three years ago, and each of the past three Augusts during play ball month, we've gone from, I think, 180 play ball events to 200 to 220. And these events are just one-day community events. There's no uniforms, no, but kids get out there and play baseball-related activities. And those community events, the introduction of kids to the game on an informal basis, teaching kids that they can play the game on an, on an informal basis, we think is really important to our sport. Yeah, you know, in a way, we both grew up in small towns. Right. Uh, I'm in, from the Midwest, uh, not far from where the Field of Dreams is, and you, which is kind of a mythic idea. You grew up in James Fenimore Cooper country, which is another great American myth. And the, I, the danger I have when I think about this is that's an, a sort of an ideal form of, of that, which isn't possible. That's lost. Right. Uh, it's not, we're not, you're not going to recreate that. No, I, I, but I think that's why I said community-based events. I mean, literally, when I think of my childhood in the summer, you know, I have a sibling either side of me but close in age. You know, we'd get on bikes in the morning and go to a local park, and, you know, we'd resurface maybe at lunch unless somebody else let us go to their house for lunch and then come home for dinner, and nobody ever worried about it. My kids grew up dramatically different than that but I do think I do think even in a different environment that if you have community based activity those activities can be structured in a way uh, that promotes a form of informal play uh, that that can exist in a more complicated society yeah yeah we came home at night when the church bells rang right <laughs> right um, right I, what what's what's in this for for your, your professional entity. I mean, what's in this for baseball? Well, um, let me answer that two ways. I think um, there's no doubt that from a business perspective, the single best way to create a fan, a baseball fan, is to have a kid play the game as a youngster. The that, that's true of all sports. The research is just absolutely, you know, it, it, you can't deny it. I mean, it's just really strong indicator uh, of who's going to be a fan. So, so that's the business justification. Um, secondly, you know, baseball has always had, um, baseball as an institution, not the game, has always had a philanthropic bent to it. Um, I think that our owners and I know our players believe deeply that our game teaches values like teamwork and stick to itness, the ability to overcome failure, that are really important in terms of producing, forget baseball players, really good adults. And um, I, it, there is no project that I've gone to the owners with that I've had more buy-in on than the idea that we ought to be more active in the youth space, making sure that kids are playing baseball. But even if they're not playing baseball, that they're playing some sport. That's kind of a step away, right, cooperating with the other leagues? Because you're usually seen as uh, chasing the same elite athletes. Yeah, you know, I, th th that's true. Um, I, I do think that um, all of the other commissioners, and I, I hesitate to even come close to speaking for them, but we, we've all, we, the four of us have had conversations about the fact that um, there's currency to the idea that the best athlete, whether he turns out to be a hockey, a professional hockey player, a professional basketball player, a professional football player, a professional baseball player, is a kid that played multiple sports. Um, I, you know, I think that um, uh, 
one of the most eloquent um, explanations uh, of this phenomenon. John Smoltz's induction speech into the Hall of Fame, um, he talked about the importance of kids playing multiple sports, how important it was to his development as a professional athlete. And you know, there's also a, there's, there's also a safety slash health overlay to it. Multiple sports, different sports, give body parts rest, um, which is a really important issue in today's youth participation market. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I, I live in Southern California, and baseball is played 10 months of the year or 11 months of the year there. I mean, when, in Iowa, when it started raining in the fall, you went inside and started playing basketball. Right, right. You know, or, or something Changed else. with the seasons. And, and, and Look, you know, we had a rash, um, kind of interesting, I guess it was two seasons ago, of particularly younger pitchers having Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, for, obviously, Tommy John surgery has been going on a long, long time, but all of a sudden we were seeing it younger, younger, and, um, it, you know, the owners started asking, what, you know, what are we seeing here? And we put together a group of orthopedists that looked at the issue, and they still have a really what I think will turn out to be a very significant cross-organizational study going on, trying to figure out if there's training methods or use differences between organizations that make a difference. But the one thing they came back and told us right at the beginning, right at the beginning, is you are getting damaged goods in the draft. And you're getting damaged goods as a result of overuse of pitchers in particular when they're young. And so we started an initiative with USA Baseball called Pitch Smart that's designed to make sure coaches understand about youth uh, use, what's an appropriate level of use, when pitchers should be start making particular kinds of pitches, but maybe most important, because a lot of these kids play in multiple leagues, the importance of keeping track of exactly how much a kid actually is pitching. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah, that's that professionalization thing again. Right. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite lines of all time from baseball is Willie Stargell. So he's telling his teammates, says, you know, remember what the umpire says. He doesn't say work ball. He says play ball. <laughs> right. You know, and, right. and to make it more recreational is the hardest thing possible, especially if the kid is good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're the ones who are most likely to get hurt. You know, there is there is informal play out there. Um, I mean, I think that you know. People have in their heads that um, the growth in the sport, the growth in participation, all involves organized play on teams. Um, and you know, we're, we're very fortunate. We we've made a huge effort in terms of trying to encourage youth participation. Um, last year, we were the only major sport that had increases in youth participation, both baseball and softball. Um, I can never. Remember. I think softball went up eight point one. Baseball went up seven point seven. But maybe the more interesting number is casual play associated with our sport went up eighteen percent. I take that as a really good sign for what that. What happened? I, look, I think a lot. I think it's like anything else. It's it's focus. It's investment. It's making great partnerships in the youth space. We when we got started on play ball, we didn't think we were going to take over the world. As a matter of fact, it would kind of be contrary to the idea of being against professionalizing right. sport. Right. Instead, what we tried to do is find great organizations that we could partner with and help make them more effective at what they were doing in the youth space. Um, I think Steve Keener in Little League is probably the best example. Um, they do a great job for us. 
um, in the 8 to 12 space, but we, we, we had some unusual partners. I mentioned the U.S. Conference of Mayors. I think they've helped us. Um, and, you, you know, you, you just have to find partners um, that share the vision that the game can be played on an informal basis. Um, you have to invest with those partners. You have to stay focused on the need to provide access to kids. Um, and I think you can make a difference. Investment's the key, though, right? Because we used to have, in, in a more, less dense society, I mean, you could. You could go out and play all day. Now, my kids weren't allowed to go outside to cross the street. Uh, so you have to have some supervised place right. uh, and have it be frequent, have it be readily available. Uh, you know, kids have, have, have their calendars worked out. You know, right. You know, our answer, and another answer on that is we've tried... Probably the one I should have mentioned right after Little League is the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, you know, the Boys and B Girls Club is baseball's official charity. You talk about a place where there is supervised activity. They run um, programs under the umbrella of reviving baseball in the inner cities for us all over the country. Um, most of those leagues really are in the informal category. You know, if they wear a uniform, it's a T-shirt. You know, it, it's, it really is informal play. But that is, you know, that's in that spot where you can make a difference with informal play, I believe. What's it cost? I mean, where does the money come from? Well, you know, we've, we've been really fortunate um, under one good thing about being a labor guy is you, you, you kind of know where all the money is hidden. And, um, you know, we had collected um, funds under the collective bargaining agreement um, from teams that, for example, overspent right. um, certain thresholds. And that tax money gets captured in central baseball. And in general, um, we have to have an agreement with the Players Association on how we're going to spend it. And in the last agreement, for better or for worse, we generated a significant amount of money. So Tony Clark and the Players Association got together with us uh, two years ago now. We took $30 million out of that tax money. So it's not coming from any club. It's not reducing what Central Baseball is distributing to the, to the clubs, but in partnership with the Players Association, we've been making investments um, exclusively in the youth space. We've built um, some elite play academies. We now have uh, six or seven of them in Major League Cities, two more on the, um, under construction right now. Um, that's at one end of the spectrum. We've done things like scholarship kids into elite play programs. You know, underprivileged kids don't have an opportunity to play travel baseball. We scholarship those kids into programs. Um, but it, all sorts of different things in, in the play area. So we've been lucky. We've had money to invest that's kind of not affecting our bottom line. Keep those fines coming. That's right. <laughs> um, I think we have uh, time for some questions. So the question that we have is, baseball can be an expensive sport to play. How do you bring down, down that cost, especially as it comes to informal play? Yeah, you know, it's, um, this is a, that's a really hard question, particularly given that I'm only going to get one because it is a real challenge for us. Um, we've approached it um, two different ways. Um, on the one hand, we've bought into the idea or accepted, maybe bought in is the wrong phrase, accepted the idea there is going to be expensive, high-end, 
travel baseball that's going on. You're not going to change that. You can't change that piece of the world. And so we've responded that by that to that by like scholarshiping kids into programs that that we know are doing a great job with kids picking out programs and, and actually paying for them to participate. Um, the second thing we've done is the urban youth academies that I mentioned. Um, ideally, we'll end up with thir at least 30 of them around the country. Um, they're free. Uh, we bear the entire cost, but it is high-end travel-based activity that often goes on in, in, in those academies. Each program is a little different with a different emphasis on you know, regular play as opposed to travel play. But in, in general, it's another way that we're trying to accept the notion there's going to be travel baseball and get, get underprivileged kids an opportunity to participate in that. Um, on the opposite end... Um, we, we believe uh, that it's important to provide informal play opportunities that are not in the travel mode, and that's what play ball is really about, um, that kids can learn to play the game, actually excel at the game without being caught in that travel mode. Our next question is, how do we get parents to understand multi-sport? You know, I think it's an education process, um, I, I, and I think that the most persuasive argument, um, and, and it's why I mentioned John Smoltz, is that a lot of professional athletes actually believe the best way to become an elite athlete is to do multiple things as a kid. Make people understand that a lot of the players that are heroes to them, that they've watched on TV, were actually multi-sport athletes all the way up until they became professionals. So that's one argument. The second one is the one we referred to before. I think you need to make parents understand that um, you know it's great to pull little Johnny out of other sports and you know commit to a coach who says he's going to be the next Jake Peavy even though the kid's only seven years old. But you need to understand that you may put it, be putting that kid at risk through overuse by making him do only one thing um, and focusing on one sport throughout the calendar year. It's actually the coaches you have to get to first, too, I think. Yeah, you know, but I, look, I, I think it's hard. Um, you know, competitive people are attracted to coaching. Um, I do think you can make coaches understand the argument that you're going to get a better athlete over the long haul if he's playing three sports. Um, to, to get him not to uh, try to get the very best athlete into their program, that, that's, a hard, yeah. Yeah, that's a hard sell, I think. Yeah, so I think we're about out of time here. I uh, appreciate you coming. I'm uh, glad to, to be to here, you. and yeah. nice to meet you. Rob Manfred is the Major League Baseball Commissioner. He spoke with author Terry McDermott. McDermott has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. The onstage discussions you heard today happened at Project Play, a program held annually by the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. It brings together leaders in sports to talk about youth, sports, and health. Find more discussions from the summit on the Aspen Institute's YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. 
I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.